0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Monday, September 14th, 2009, and I am back in the studio. Boy, oh boy. If, if those of you who don't know, I was, uh... Last week I was at a, an emergent conference. I was, um at a theological conversation hosted by the emergent church guys Doug Jones, uh, Doug Paget and Tony Jones. More on that in just a minute. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically and compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god after uh, after my trip last week to chicago um i could <laughs> i feel a a very strong sense of urgency to keep doing what i'm doing um what i saw what i heard was just wow <laughs> anyway we'll talk about that in just a minute here so uh, oh. Maybe we should talk about it. Well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. So today I'm going to give you an update on my uh, trip to the Emergent Church Conference on Jürgen Moltmann and uh, give you just a little bit of uh, of an update on that. Maybe not go into too much depth, but give you a little bit of a thumbnail tomorrow on the program. I'm going to be, uh, I'll have uh, Bob DeWay on the phone line with me. We're going to be discussing what we saw together because I wasn't there by myself. And thank God I was not there by myself. Oh, man. Um, I was there with Bob DeWay, who is the author of a fine book uh, that we've made available here at Fighting for the Faith called The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We've been featuring this book for a little more than a month now and if you don't have this book you need to get this book because i'll tell you this the one thing that this conference did is it absolutely confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, bob's thesis regarding the emergent church and what it is uh it just he 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 nailed it he stuck the landing he the, he got it man and uh, man ugh, ugh, ugh. <laughs> Do I sound a little disgusted, a little flabbergasted? My brain got melted out by the emergent waves that were, it, were that were hitting it like beams of uh, radiation. And uh, it took me a couple of days to get back down, get, get, for my brain to re-gel so that I can actually speak in coherent sentences. And so if I don't speak in coherent sentences and uh, seem just a little discombobulated, uh, well, it, it's just due to the fact that uh they focused their uh, their radiation uh, beam on my brain and melted part of it and but the good news is it was not a uh, permanent thing but oh boy de boy so today we're going to talk about the emergent church and uh and then I'm going to do a news story about a, a new survey that shows that um, there's a um, there's a prevalence of clergy that are engaging in sexual misconduct talk about that and believe it or not that'll segue us into what I think is the important subject to talk about today. Um, after, after my trip to uh, Chicago and hearing what the emergent church is up to and what what it is they really believe, teach, and confess, I, I think it's uh, time to do an apologetic of sorts, and we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to take a look at what the Bible discusses regarding the topic of what's called the great apostasy. The, throughout the ages... Uh, uh Christian theologians have picked on, up on a particular biblical teaching regarding what's called the great apostasy which would be one of the things that would happen prior to uh, Christ's return and um now I, I can't tell you if we're in the great apostasy or not that's really kind of not the point of it uh the point of the, the the biblical teaching is to show you the earmarks of what it is that we're to be looking uh, looking for uh, in the great apostasy, the Apostle Paul mentions it, and the Apostle Peter, he actually fleshes out some of it. And uh, are we in it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. Is it something that that's really going to happen? Yeah. Could we be in it? Y- yeah, we could be. So, um, again, I don't do eschatology very well in the sense of... I. You know, when's Christ going to return? When he decides to, I don't know. But uh, is it really going to happen? Yes. Is Could it be soon? Yeah, it could be tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'm convinced it could actually be before the end of the program. Um that being the case, is it possible we're in the great apostasy? Yes, and we're going to take a look at it biblically. And then to round out, since we're talking about the emergence, I thought we would do a Rob Bell sermon review today. And uh, this one, this particular sermon review that we're going to do of Rob Bell's, uh, as far as the degree of difficulty on the discernment scale is concerned, uh, this one, uh, on a scale of one to ten, one being the easiest to discern; those would be like your seeker-driven guys, and uh, ten being the most difficult to discern. This is probably an eight and a half. And so, uh, I, I play this uh, the sermon review as as a you got to listen not just for what he's saying, but for what he's not saying. That that those ones are the more difficult ones to uh, discern. So, what are we going to do? We're going to compare what he's saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, and you know, my suspicion is is that this particular sermon, it's called the Christ in the Common, may actually have some twinges of that emergent panentheism that I experienced over there at the, in in Chicago. So with that in mind, let me just kind of give you a, a brief synopsis of what happened at the conference, and um, the, the, the the theological conversation was at First Presbyterian Church in Libertyville, Illinois. And um, i got to tell you, I I am absolutely convinced that if the founders of that Presbyterian Church knew what was going on in that church this past week, uh, they would definitely be rolling over in their graves, because uh, the Christianity that they were discussing looks nothing like the Christianity confessed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean... Just completely something different. And uh, got there uh, Friday uh, – well, it was – no, it wasn't Friday. I left on Friday. Got there Wednesday, uh, Wednesday afternoon and um, day one you know, met Bob DeWay. We, we hung out together and we kept each other sane is probably the best way of putting it. And uh, their their initial plenary was uh, by uh, Dr. John Frank and he basically gave us a forty to fifty minute speech on why truth is really actually uh, uh, is is an irreducible plurality, and that's what orthodoxy is. Orthodoxy is is a plurality of truths and a plurality of Christianities, and that that's the way God intended it. And so. Uh, that one just made me go, okay, so let me see if I got you straight, uh, John, what you're saying is, is that, uh, truth is an irreducible plurality. However, that, cl- that statement that truth is an irreducible plurality is a reducible singularity. So this, the single one truth out there that you're claiming exists is that truth is a plurality. Yeah, that was pretty much it. It basically what was John Frank doing? This falls into the category of old liberal concepts of truth being relative. Rather than saying truth is relative, what we're going to do is we're going to come up with a creative way of discussing it and say rather than saying truth is relative, because we all know that that's a self-defeating proposition. Instead, we're going to say truth is an irreducible plurality. It just sounds so smart, doesn't it? And from there, they uh, after that, they did communion. It was... All, it was um, Officiated by all female pastors, um, and earlier in the day, I actually sat at a Jürgen Moltmann 101 conference by a uh, pastrix from the Journey Church out there in in Texas. Her name was uh, Danielle Schroyer. and uh, where we she gave us a, a 10,000 foot view of all the writings and major themes in the books that Jürgen Moltmann has written. And boy, was she really fluent in uh, in Jürgen Moltmann. Not so much in Bible, that's for sure. And uh, anyway, so they they had communion after that, and the best thing I can say is is that I physically felt ill afterwards. Bob and I, uh, we tried to stick it out as long as we could, and we stayed until the point of the distribution, at which point I think we ran out of the building screaming. Um, maybe not screaming, but we did leave the building in haste uh, for fear that, uh, that hellfire and brimstone might come and consume the place yeah, that was just crazy, one of the, I wonder if I still have this, hang on a second here, looking for my notes, yeah, actually, I have the, uh, right here, uh, the sacred meal liturgy, I actually have the songs that they sang at this thing, whoo, anyway, uh, let me read to you some of the lyrics from this communion, uh, sacred meal liturgy that they, uh, by the way, and all the music was done to fusion jazz, or jazz fusion, I don't know which is the right way of putting it, but, um, Let me read these um, lyrics for you. Take my voice and sing your holy mystery. You can take my heart, uh, still beating in my chest. Sounds like something from that second Indiana Jones movie. "Uh, You can take my hands so you can build your kingdom, because I know you don't have a body without me. We will be your hands and your feet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, One of the songs they sang during this sacred meal liturgy was claiming that god doesn't have any hands or feet without us which kind of leads to begs the question well uh jesus he ascended bodily into heaven and when he appeared to the disciples after the after he was raised from the dead he showed them his hands and his feet and they still had nail marks in them so how is it that you can be singing that, uh, that unless we are God's hands and feet that he doesn't have a body, just, you know, just a theological question. And what was interesting was, uh, one of the gals there, uh, Annette, uh, uh, uh Nanette Sawyer, who was one of the pastrixes there from the emergent church, uh, after, after they taught us how to sing this particular song, by the way, I did not sing it, um, she said, oh, I just realized that the, these lyrics could be controversial. And I went, really? No kidding. Really? Huh? I was sitting in the back, but these were, these were this was the thoughts inside of my head. And she says, well, you know, we weren't really interested in trying to make a theologically controversial statement. Instead, the, the, we, we got these ideas from Teresa of Avila, as if Teresa of Avila wasn't trying to say anything controversial another song that they sang there let me see if i can read these lyrics here we go uh <clears throat> okay gracious loving god pour out your holy spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine uh, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be for us the communion of our god come and meet us at the center of who we are Uh, We open our hearts to receive you, holy God. Come and meet us at the center of who we are. Can anyone tell me where that is, by the way? Uh, If I were to ask God to come and meet me at the center of who I am, where would God meet me? Uh, Would it be at the corner of 5th and Main down in Murdoch, Nebraska? (sighs) Come and meet us at the center of who we are. And then uh, for those of you who are so inclined, they actually gave us some uh, Jürgen Moltmann quotes for contemplation. Let me read some of these for you. See if you guys can figure any of this out. So here we go. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann quote number one for contemplation. God is going to create everything anew. So seize these opportunities. They are... They are there already in yourself and close to yourself. Peace is possible. Justice is possible. Liberation is possible. God has made the impossible possible. And we are invited to seize our possibilities for living. Participate in the renewal of society and nature. That was one of the quotes uh, uh, faithfully recreated for us at the uh, on the backside of the sacred meal liturgy for, for us to contemplate. Let me read another one of these. Uh, wherever we proclaim God's kingdom, God's people gather together just of themselves and will have their own experiences and develop their own forms of belief and worship. The new creation is a, as rainbow-hued and diversified as creation at the beginning. Next, Jürgen Moltmann, quote, Christ isn't merely a person, he's a road too. And the person who believes him takes the same road that he took. Okay, next, Jürgen Moltmann, quote, The more we love, the more vulnerable we are. Love for life makes us capable of happiness. But love for life makes us able to suffer, too. Uh, The more we can rejoice, the more we can suffer and grieve. And that is the dialectic of the human life. Does any of this sound like it has any connection to God's word at all? Uh, Contemplation, the final Jürgen Moltmann, quote, for contemplation during the sacred meal liturgy is only people who find the kingdom of God find themselves and people who really and truly find themselves find the kingdom of God for the kingdom of God is within too, very deeply within us play your part in God's kingdom. And even now in the present, let something of the rebirth of all things become visible, which Christ will complete on his day, come alive for your life is coming. So there you have it. This, some of the stuff from day one. Anyway, Jürgen Moltmann went on to explain his life story, how he was a soldier who fought for Nazi Germany, was captured by the British and spent a few years in a, a prisoner of war camp in Great Britain, and uh, how he became a Christian apparently as a result of the loving kindness of the Christians who came to, to care for the uh, the Nazi war uh, uh, prisoners. And uh, and then in the, the 60s, he formulated his eschatology or his theology of hope, apparently in the face of nihilism and depression. And it just kind of went on from there. I mean, let me read for you um, some of the musings of one of the emergents who was there. Um, this is uh, Julie Clausen. Uh, she's... Um, from her blog, let me. This is this is a liberal gal. Remember, the emergent church now is liberalism 2.0. It's basically a software upgrade. Um, over the next few days, I'll be blogging my thoughts about the Moltmann conversation. I'm not a theologian, she says, and I've read very little of Jürgen Moltmann. Although now I, I want to read a lot more, so I will just be reflecting on what I heard at the emergent theological conversation. Again, these are some thoughts from a gal who who is an avowed liberal. At one point, Moltmann spoke about the two crosses of Christianity, the real cross at Golgotha and Constantine's dream cross, a discussion, I assume, he he develops further in his book, The Crucified God. The cross that appeared to Constantine in his vision was the cross of empire, of violence. It was used to conquer, oppress, and destroy opposition. His cross is... Uh, one of power and domination not of response and reconciliation but it is constantine's cross and not the cross of Golgotha that the church has most readily accepted through the ages Moltmann mentioned that it was the uh, precursor of the iron iron cross and the victoria cross crosses that spoke not of the sacrifice of Jesus but of empire and political maneuvering We place that cross on flags to demonstrate the forced acceptance of a political interpretation of Christ. Accepting Christ and his cross has become about accepting the empire's official version thereof. Moltmann suggested and said that we need to go back to the origins of our faith and find a new future for Christianity in the world outside of imperialism. I had no idea that Christianity was fighting imperialism. We have so confused the cross of Constantine with the real cross of Christ that we fail to understand and honor what the cross truly means. We honor our idea of a powerful, vindictive cross instead of a suffering cross. Unless we break from this idolatry, the problem of the church causing pain in this world will continue. So, see, apparently the... Christianity has adopted the uh, the cross of imperialism. At least that's what Moltmann said, and I heard it from him myself. And I think that um, Julie Clausen does a fine job of reflecting on what he said. And I think her, her ideas uh, actually give us a glimpse into the mind of, this, of somebody who follows the new liberalism 2.0. She sa- continues, I found the image fascinating. When the cross becomes our shield and sword instead of a symbol of hope, our faith becomes about struggle with other instead of love for the other. Instead of acknowledging that through Christ's sufferings, all can be reconciled, we desire to forcibly make others think as we do. But conversation through coercion is not a reflection of hope and love, but of fear if we cannot let the other be who they are and encounter the cross on their own terms then we have forsaken the cross in favor of empire be that political or ideological empire i fully agree that we need to return to the real cross but i also do wonder what the future would look like apart from these from this need to use the cross to justify our disrespectful in, and inhumane treatment of others and how how are you being disrespectful and inhumane well, by promoting your ideological empire and trying to force people to believe what the Bible says about the cross instead of letting them experience the cross for themselves on their own terms. A cross that embraced the suffering, notice that though the self-defeating proposition in um, in Julie's uh, logic, she's, notice, she's exalting uh, Moltmann's concept of the original cross and she's demeaning people who who follow this idea of, of of using the cross for imperialism ideological imperialism at that see that's bad and do and and, and Jurgen Moltmann's idea is good so isn't she engaging in the exact thing that she's condemning hasn't she turned Jurgen Moltmann's concept of the original cross into an ideological empire that she is now using to smash Those who follow the the other imperial concept of the cross? See, that's the thing about uh, this liberalism is is that it's self-defeating. It doesn't believe in absolute truth. And so it condemns those who believe in absolute truth and that truth is is knowable. And uh, instead, what they're doing is they're building their own empire themselves. It's just amazing how these people think let me read another one of her musings on moltmann's uh conversations again because it gives us into the mind of um of what these uh, liberals were thinking there one of the things i appreciated most in the conversation with uh conversations with moltmann was his insistence on returning to the simplicity of the gospel funny enough though he never defined the gospel the entire time that Jürgen Moltmann spoke at the Emergent uh, Theological Conversation. He never once defined the gospel, never once said, the good news is X, Y, Z. He referenced the gospel, but he never defined it. And And so basically everybody there just, you know, whatever you thought about the gospel, that apparently was the right definition to work from, whatever you're, except for the one that says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Okay, uh, that Christ was our vicarious sacrifice on the cross for our sins, that wasn't the good news he was referring to. I can tell you that. You know, the fact that he wouldn't define it and never talked about Jesus and the cross in terms of sin, redemption, um, judgment, or, or atonement, or anything like that. You know, In fact, it was brought up ever so briefly in a way that he ended up shooting that down, um, he never defined the gospel biblically. He talked about it. So when uh, when Julie Clausen here on her blog, reflecting on uh, what Moltmann said at this emergent theological conversation, she says that that Moltmann in, she appreciated his insistence on returning to the simplicity of the gospel. My question is, what gospel? What gospel are you talking about? How are you defining the word? Often he was asked a question on some controversial issue in the American church, and he simply scoffed at how we make such a big deal over it. His thought is that God is God and the gospel is the gospel. Duh. Uh, How we keep trying to manipulate and add things to it seemed preposterous or even heretical to Moltmann. Take for example, his response on two such uh, hot topic issues uh, much discussed lately in America, in America, gender language for God and homosexuality. By the way, Uh, This is a great point. uh, time to divulge the fact that many times during this conference, the Holy Spirit was referred to as a she by the emergent speakers or emergent conversation leaders. So when they talked about the Holy Spirit, they would say, now the Holy Spirit, when she says this or when she does that, I kid you not, and Jürgen Molbon didn't even bat an eyelash at this. So Moltmann was asked about the difficulty in coming up with pronouns that are appropriate and intimate and personal for God, and yet don't uh, anthropomorphize God with a gender. His response is that God is neither he nor she nor it. God is God. We should not use God's divinity to justify the denom- uh, the, the domination of men over women. Now notice that was that was Jurgen Moltmann's answer is that God is neither male nor female or or an it he, God is God therefore we shouldn't use God's divinity to justify the domination of men over women and that's somehow to justify people who can claim that the holy spirit is a she yet nowhere in God's revelation of himself it, that we find in scriptures do we find the holy spirit referred to as a she. In fact, Jesus on several occasions in discussing the Holy Spirit says when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will do this and he will do that. That's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. And so in the liberal mind, the only justification for using pronouns about God that all have male, that are all male, is that 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 is somehow an oppressive western white males dominated concept that to to oppress women hog diddly wash that is not true at all god's word reveals god as father son and holy spirit and even the holy spirit is referred to in using masculine pronouns in the scriptures that the holy spirit himself inspired to be written we continue, uh, the image we have found of the Trinity is not one of hierarchy or domination, but of unity. He's re uh, re-thunk the Trinity, by the way, as a social Trinity. Uh, in, he's, it's all in his book about the Trinity. Uh, the image we have of the Trinity is not one of hierarchy or domination, but of unity. This unity can be reflected in our church communities, being in community with the image of the co- communal identity of love. I have no idea what that sentence means. I found this view of allowing God to be God, to be refreshing. Uh, this is uh, Julie Clawson's uh, statements. Too often God is used for, the, for that very purpose of domination that subverts and destroys community. Sometimes we, sometime we get so wrapped up in the complexities of our own opinions that we paint elaborate portraits of God in our own personal images. By the way, I'm not painting an image of God in my own personal image when I point to the Bible and say, here's what the thing says. That's not me painting God in my own image. <clears throat> Moltmann proposes instead of a simplicity that doesn't fall into idolatry by reducing God to gender and yet remains intimately connected to God through the use of multi pronouns for God. So uh, in, in the emergent uh, way of thinking now, Jürgen Moltmann has given them the rationale, the, the, the apologetic, if you would, philosophical, not biblical, it, uh, for referring to the Holy Spirit as a... She. So Julie continues, same thing with homosexuality. When the schismatic nature of sexuality in the American church was brought up, Moltmann replied, by the way, we're talking about homosexuality. Moltmann replied that the whole discussion isn't a problem in Germany. That's because uh, they've abandoned uh, biblical Christianity a long time ago there. He said they've never had a struggle about this in the churches and in between the churches because the church is about the gospel and not about sex. This is just a lame argument. It's stupid on its face. Uh, Christians believe in justification of human beings by faith alone, Moltmann said, not by faith and homosexuality or heterosexuality. That, according to Moltmann, is adding heresy. (sighs) How do you... I kid you not. I mean... When that when he said that, there were people twittering that all over the place. Oh, that's the best thing I ever heard. Momon said, We believe in salvation by grace alone, not by salvation by, by grace plus heterosexuality. The, there's one problem. Okay? That's just empty platitudes on his part that have no basis in God's word. He even said homosexuality is neither a sin nor a crime, and there's no reason why we shouldn't we as Christians shouldn't bless those relationships, well, he's wrong. It is a sin, according to God's word. And in Israel, it was a crime punishable by death. That's what the Bible teaches. So he's just flat out wrong and contradicts scripture. And his claim that that uh, we're saved by grace through faith and not by uh, grace plus heterosexuality, again, is a false argument. Uh, and the reason why is because the call of the gospel is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Teaching that homosexuality is sinful is biblical teaching. It is also biblical teaching to say that God loves homosexuals so much that Christ died for their sins on the cross, even their sins of homosexuality. And he calls all homosexuals, like all heterosexuals, to repentance and the forgiveness of sins offered to them in Jesus' name. Plain and simple. What I heard at this conference was basically a new mystical form of liberalism and it's I'm telling you this stuff is just dangerous dangerous deadly anti-biblical anti-christian and uh, it's it uh, this is just terrible and I'll tell you why because what I thought I witnessed at the end of this thing was basically a group of 300 people uh, made up of young guys who are theologically minded and theologically trained who are going to be pastors someday, or who are pastors, or are who call, are college faculty. And they ate this stuff up, and now they're going to take it, and they're going to be disciples of this and spread this heresy uh, into the the four corners of the church on on the planet. And it's just terrible. So when we get back from this first break, I'm going to talk ab- about the biblical teaching regarding what's called the great apostasy. It comes at the very end of the ages, at the end of days, and the apostle Paul discusses it, Jesus mentions it, and Peter fleshes out some of this great apostasy within the church and his uh, second uh, epistle. And uh, you definitely want to listen in so that you can hear about this. And like I said, on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, Bob Deway and I are going to talk in more depth and detail about the things that we heard and uh, how to how to refute it biblically. And then to cap off the rest of the program today, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Rob Bell's uh, sermon, "The Christ in the Common, So you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at com. Or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back.
1: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false
2: doctrine now. <laughs>
0: Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio.
2: You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics.
0: Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quandos Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren
2: dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and...
0: Whoa! Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slams dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teeing Bowles Webber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pommel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
1: Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity.
0: We're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program is like a big bucket of ice water thrown in your face. I'm not interested in being politically correct. I'm not interested in in worrying about your feelings. I'm interested in preaching and proclaiming the truth, and as a result of it, I step on people's toes all the time, and worst of all, when I step on your toe, I'm wearing spiked golf shoes, and I rub it in. Just want to let you know. That's what happens listening to this program. And I don't repent of that, because that sometimes is exactly what you need to hear. I'm not interested in taking the truth and making it fluffy and frilly and and making it soft and, and tame. <laughs> no. So as a result of that, if, if you know, if from time to time I get the emails from people saying, he, you know, it's just listening to us, it's hard sometimes. <clears throat> My response, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be. Need to remind you, um, listening to Fighting for the Faith. Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital, critical, necessary in order for us to continue bringing this important program to you and uh, you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, www.fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons there. Or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box. 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And keep this in mind, supporting Fighting for the Faith not only helps a pos- make make it possible for us to bring this program to you, it is a generous way to love and support your neighbor who may not have the ability to support Fighting for the Faith. So by, uh, by supporting the program, you actually partner with us and uh, make it possible for us to continue bringing this program. All right, looking at the docket here for the pro- program today, I'm going to save the news until tomorrow. And um, do a little bit of biblical work here. You you all heard of what's called the great apostasy? Believe it or not, this is a biblical teaching. And I want to give you just a little bit of background on it. Now, one of the theories, when I talk about the great apostasy with some of my friends, I've I've changed my language. I refer to it as the Omega heresy. Okay. And you're sitting there going, ooh, that sounds intriguing, the Omega heresy. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a movie, right? Well, that's really not the idea behind it. But the, the the concept behind the Omega heresy is that Jesus Christ himself is going to return one day, physically. He's going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. It will be the last day for this planet, this universe as we know it, okay? and god is going to destroy what we see here and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth and th- those who do not trust in christ for their salvation uh they are numbered with the wicked and they will spend eternity in a literal conscious hell and that's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and ever. okay And those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, whether they lived before Christ lived, looking forward to the promises of the Messiah, or after he died and rose again, all of those people will be numbered among the righteous, not because they're righteous themselves, but because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And they will live forever, in in basically eternal life with God, face-to-face relationship with God for eternity in his kingdom. Okay. That's really truly going to happen. Now, everyone wants to know, you know, can you pin the tail on the day when Jesus is coming back? My answer is no, because Jesus said no. <laughs> Do I know when Jesus is going to return? Not even close. OK, the Hal Lindsey's and the guys like that who try—you basically tried to say, you know, the late great planet Earth, the, the Earth is coming to an end soon and all that kind of stuff. And they tried to pin it to the 1980s, you know, countdown to Armageddon. Well, those guys, you can't put a date on it. And a lot of the, the problems that those guys did is that they were looking at the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is a very difficult book to interpret. And looking at, looking at their newspapers and looking at the book of Revelation, somehow trying to figure out how they can connect the dots. I don't think that's the way, if, if you're going to try to say, listen, we're getting closer to the return of Christ, um, I can guarantee you we're closer today than we were 20 years ago or even yesterday. Uh, but the, if you really want to divine the times, if you would, the church is the bellwether. The church is, is the, is the thing to look at. Okay, not the newspaper and stories about Israel and things like that. Okay, people have been trying to do this forever and ever and ever, and it just doesn't work. If you really want to get an idea as to, you know, get a, get a feel for the urgency that maybe it's it's today, um, you, you look at the church and its health in regards to uh, what was prophesied regarding the church. Now, we're going to begin in the wrong place, but work with me here. I'm doing a little think piece on this biblically anyway. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, talks about the coming of our Lord. He says, starting at verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. It hasn't. Uh, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed who is the son of destruction. The Apostle Paul here discusses a couple of things that have to take place first. The uh, rebellion occurs, and the uh, the man of lawlessness uh, is revealed, who is the son of destruction. Now, when he talks about the rebellion, that that in the Greek is the word apostasia. Okay, and so when you're talking about the rebellion, it's the apostasia. Apostasia, the Greek word itself, means defiance of an established system or authority rebellion or an abandonment or breach of faith, okay? Now, here's the big deal. Throughout the ages, people have discussed and theologians have talked about the coming great apostasy, the coming great rebellion. And here's the deal. Every human being is born by nature, sinful and at war with God, children of the devil, if you would. Now, that means that the Apostle Paul is not talking about something that is pervasive in the world because though the already default mode of all human beings born on this planet who are descendants of Adam and Eve is that they are born sinful and rebellious against God. They are already, they've already apostatized. If you would, they've already rebelled. Okay. So the big thing is, is that this is not a rebellion that takes place out in the world. This is a rebellion that takes place in the church that where there is an a very significant, measurable, seeable, feelable, touchable, hearable rebellion against God in the church. That's the great apostasy. Now, Jesus... In in the Gospels, it, when he talks about his coming, he talks about wars, rumors of wars, and things like that. And he says, make sure that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming to be the Christ. So Jesus kind of takes a more global look at things, and he says, okay, there's these are birth pains, wars, rumors of wars, and things like that. Okay, so you got the birth pains going on. Now, the Apostle Peter, on the other hand, the Apostle Peter, he talks about the apostasy. That, that that Paul here discusses in Second Thessalonians chapter two, and the Apostle Peter actually fleshes out some of the telltale signs of this apostasy or the Omega heresy. The Omega heresy being the final heresy prior to Christ's return. So, with that in mind, we're going to turn to 2 Peter. Okay, and for the sake of context, I'm going to read. All, well, pretty much all of of Second Peter, at least Second Peter. You know, so here we go, 2 Peter. Okay, we're going to do this in context, so that uh, again, what are our three biblical rules for correct biblical interpretation? Context, context, and context. <laughs> are you ready? Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, there's Peter talking about forensic justification right there in verse 1 of Second uh, Peter. <clears throat> anyway, I digress. Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us into his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will soon will be soon as our lord jesus christ has made clear and i will make every effort so that after my departure my departure you may be at that any time to recall these things for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you uh, by the power uh, the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty now notice here first second peter chapter 1 verse 16 peter now Making it clear, we didn't give you cleverly devised myths and stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of these events. Christianity is based upon a historical event: Jesus Christ's incarnation, life, and death, and resurrection on the cross, uh, resurrection from the dead. Okay, for we, when we received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And this is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, it's a historical event. He was there. He saw it. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing first, this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here at the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Peter explains you know that they were witnesses to the things that are recorded in the gospels including Christ's death and resurrection and his uh, and his glorious transformation on the mount of transfiguration and he reminds them that these prophecies of the holy spirit that he's going to discuss here in a second are there as a lamp to your feet it's shining in a dark place and so he this, these prophecies regarding the coming apostasy that uh, that peter gives they are there to be a lamp for, uh, for believers, a light shining into the darkness to help us make sense of what's going on. So we read Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Now we get into the details of the coming apostasy in, in, in full. Here we go. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in... Destructive heresies—a a, a good translation there would be heresies of perdition, or heresies of judgment, heresies that bring judgment. Even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, I've got to make a point here. Uh, those of you Calvinists listening here, just want to point this out. Notice here in Second Peter chapter two verse one, uh, to these heretics, it, it Peter says that. They deny even Christ, the master who bought them. Just by way of pointing this out, I think this verse does blow up the whole concept of limited atonement. But that's really not the purpose of this little exposition. I just wanted to bring that up. But I love you, Calvinists. I think you guys are great. Anyway, we continue. Anyway. Now... Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now listen, we already see signs of this type of heresy, this apostasy, right now in our time. Now, does that mean that Christ is at the door getting ready to come in any second? Maybe, maybe. I don't know but it could be that this is just the beginnings of this and it's only going to get worse. We have false teachers who are bringing in destructive heresies who are denying the master who bought them. The we have like for instance in the emergent church and in liberalism the denial of Christ's death on the cross for their sins. The the, the denial of Christ's vicarious death on the cross. Um People who are following their sensuality, basically you're thinking, you know, think of uh, sins of the flesh here. And because this is occurring in the church, this is not stuff outside of the church. This is stuff inside the church. The way of the truth is being blasphemed, blasphemed by non-believers. They're looking at basically what's going on inside of Christianity and saying this is ridiculous. Christianity's stupid. You know, some of, the, some of the claims leveled against Christianity by, by the new atheists. Are absolutely valid. We got crazy things being preached in the name of God that are just absolute heresies, okay? And so, and then we got people who, in their greed they exploit other people with false words. Think of the evangelists who are out there basically, you know, telling you to sow a, a seed offering to their ministry, and God is going to bless you with with a Mercedes Benz, uh, ten thousand square foot house, and uh, you know, and, and a Learjet. jet. OK, Peter says here their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their con, their destruction is not asleep. That is those are some big words there. That's a huge, huge check to what's going on. They need to wake up because their destruction is not idle. God is not asleep. He does. He's taking note of this thing. And the fires of hell are being stoked just for them. We continue reading. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald and a preacher of righteousness, along with seven others... When he brought a flood upon the world uh, of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Gotta pause there for a second. Second Peter chapter two verses four through six is an argument against this idea that God is not going to judge and God is not going to punish. We already have examples of God punishing angels, him destroying the entire ancient world prior to the flood, with the exception of eight people. We have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of these are an example of what is going to happen. That's what Peter says. All of those things are an example of what is going to happen. It's coming. And if he rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Now, this kind of picks up another theme here. One of the things we're seeing here of the the coming great apostasy, some of the flavors of it, if you would, are people who exploit you with false words for greed, who deny Christ's death on the cross for their sins. Um, they follow sensuality, and they are lawless. So we're basically talking about complete licentiousness, uh, you know, antinomianism run amok, if you would that the, the, those are flavors of the great apostasy now these false teachers he, peter goes on to say that they are bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glories okay the glories there are referring to the glories of christ they are they they, uh, they are they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glories that's the glories of christ Whereas angels, though, greater in might and power, they do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against these false teachers before the Lord. But these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression by a speechless donkey who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, continuing his description of these false teachers, they are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, for speaking loud boasts of folly. Now, this is an interesting statement. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. The Greek there says basically says that they are speaking bloated words of, of emptiness or bloated words of, of futility. they basically highfalutin words that mean absolutely nothing. Uh, they speak loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Notice, again, sensual passions being brought up. Think about... The complete licentiousness and an apostasy of these false teachers who are basically saying that homosexuality isn't a sin okay that that think about that N- not even calling anything a sin, you could just basically anything goes Christianity, you know they don't even preach about sin anymore, you can be whatever you you could be a you know you could just you, you'd be a christ follower and and uh, be shacking up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you could be a christ follower and and be a practicing, unrepentant homosexual, who cares? It's, we're saved by grace, not by sex. That's what they say, isn't it? <clears throat> they promise people freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, their last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What truth Proverbs says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow. In the mire, we continue chapter three. So this is now the second letter that I, Peter, am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that mockers will come in the last days, mocking, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay. Now keep this in mind here. Second Peter chapter three gives us another flavor of the great apostasy. And notice here, Peter here is pointing out the fact that he's stirring up their minds by way of the predictions of the Holy prophets so that they won't fall. Um, that in the last days, that mockers will come mocking. Literally, these are people within the Christian church, the visible Christian church, who are mocking biblical Christianity, who are mocking what the Bible says, and they are following their own sinful desires, and they deny the physical return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. Does that sound like a lot of the stuff that we are hearing today? Yes, it does. We continue. Now, Peter gives a great apologetic against these guys who deny the physical return of Christ. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, they're continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says of these false teachers, they deliberately forget they deliberately overlook they refuse to point to call, recall to mind the biblical passages that con- that contradict them. It says verse five they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter here likens Christ's day of judgment, his return in judgment, to the the flood of Noah, and says it's like the same thing, except for rather than the world being destroyed by water, this time it's going to be destroyed by fire. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven's and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace with God. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability." But instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So there you have just a biblical fleshing out prophecy of the Apostle Peter of what the great apostasy would look like within the church, the great rebellion against God in the church, in the visible church, lawless men, licentious men, false teachers teaching sensuality and following after their own passions, mocking biblical Christianity from within the church, denying the the physical return of Jesus Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, these are all char- uh, greedy men who teach... Uh, false heresies for gain and exploit you for money. Does that sound anything like today? Does it sound anything like the current condition of the church? And yet Peter says that he writes these things so that you may be diligent and be found in Christ without blemish and at peace. And how is that possible? By trusting in Jesus Christ alone, for the forgiveness of your sins, because he truly died on the cross for you. I'd love to get your feedback. Read Second Peter and tell me what you think in, you know, in light of what you've read as to what the state of the Christian church is. Is Christ going to return? <laughs> could be soon. Could this be the great apostasy? Well, these words were written for a reason. It could be. And it could be that we have a long time yet to go. If one thing is certain that many of the things described by the Apostle Peter in that great apostasy, the Omega heresy, if you would, those are, those are the things that are already hallmarks of a lot of the teaching going on today in the word faith movement, seeker-driven movement, and the emergent church. So read these things soberly and let them drive you back to Christ and the forgiveness of sins and be grounded in him and know these things so that you don't fall into these errors that are already here, regardless of how many years it takes for Christ to return. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. or you can look me up on Facebook. My name is Chris Roseborough or you can follow me on Twitter and watch my subversive microblogging battle tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is twelve ninety plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to PirateChristianRadio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity.
0: Alright, we're back. We're already into hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. <clears throat> Apparently I've long-winded today, and some of you are going, well, how is that different than any other day? <laughs> Don't ask that question. It's best of you. Don't make me answer it. All right, we're going to be doing our sermon review shortly here. All right, we're gonna we're gonna dive into our uh, sermon review here. Hang on a second, what did I do with my uh, sermon review music? Hang on, uh, let's see. Good, uh, there we go. <laughs> I lost it. I you know, since I've upgraded, I've been upgrading a bunch of things on my Macintosh since i have uh, released a uh, um, Snow Leopard. And uh, some things are not quite in the same place. Is probably the best way to describe it. But uh, then again, there are a couple of glitches with Snow Leopard. I'm a little disappointed with some of the things uh, that uh, Apple has done there. But uh, they're they're rapidly fixing them. <clears throat> Just don't tell any of the PC guys that. Anyway, time for our sermon review, which means it's our sermon review update music here. That's right, the good, the bad, the ugly, we review them all here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, I said earlier, and I, uh, I'll reiterate it today's sermon is by Rob Bell. It's entitled The Christ of In the Common. And in comparing what Rob Bell is saying in the name of God to the Word of God, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on. On the discernment difficulty scale, this is at least an 8.5, maybe a 9. Subtle. Subtle. Sometimes those are the worst kinds. Not where there's something blatantly or outrageously said that's dumb and stupid and completely contradictory to the word of God. Sometimes uh, the bad stuff is off by one Or 1.5 degrees. That being the case, sharpen your pencil get ready to take notes. And what are we looking for here? I'm going to kill the music here. Yeah, thank you. What are we looking for? Uh, Listen to hear what he does with Christ. Is he talking about sin, redemption, Christ's death on the cross for our sins, calling sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and telling them what Christ has done for us? Or is the sermon all law based? The only th- the only thing it talks about is the things you got to do, you, the things you need to be doing. Um, and how is it handling Scripture? Is it is it correctly exegeting God's Word and drawing conc- correct conclusions from what the text says, or does it contradict it? Those are things you got to be looking for. And so, uh, with that in mind, we're going to dive into our uh, again. This is a more difficult to discern sermon by Rob Bell entitled. Christ in the Common.
2: I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter uh, 25. I think we'll start there. That's um, great. The White Bucket Project. Um, and um, well, there's all kinds of ground to cover. Um, last week we talked about singing and worship. And we did a bit of it ourselves, we played some instruments, we had a hootenanny of sorts. Thought we had a good time. Um, this morning, so last week essentially was why to sing, or how to sing, or what's behind singing. This morning I'd like to talk about um, listening, and teaching, and sermons, and messages, and that sort of thing. Um, but, but just talking about sermons for you all, that, that might not be that interesting, so I'd like to talk about the larger framework within which we gather and see if we might come up with all sorts of new ways to see it. Um, so let me say a word of prayer, and then we will get into it. Dear God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that we get to be part of a church, that we can walk with people, We can be connected to all these larger resources. We think of the many who have gotten help in the past several weeks. Uh, We think of the many who, for the first time, feel like they're not alone. And we celebrate that. Uh, We want to be the kind of community, the kind of church, where everybody's needs are met. Because we believe that's what Jesus would have us do. And have us be. So we thank you for giving us uh, such a vision and for giving us the strength to get it done. Uh, thanks for Steve, for Brian, for Julia, for just the many ways in which we're seeing this just lived out in our midst. And now as we look at these passages, as we think uh, about why we gather, as we think about what a fresh word looks and feels like, as we think about teaching, preaching, messages, all that, Um, give us sharp minds to sort this through so that we can see what you see, so that we can follow the resurrected Christ. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Uh, Sometimes when I hear somebody teaching or preaching or giving a message, sometimes I think, I have no idea what this person is talking about. This just makes no sense. Um, the, I came across something recently when I was studying, and I was like, I'm like I have to show this to, every, to my friends, which is you, by the way. Um, I have to show people this. This was in a commentary. <laughs> Let us quote from J. Preston Ebbe. Who gives a clear pronouncement of this truth. So it's some long theological discourse. And then partway through it just says, the, the, the commentator says, Now, um, let me show somebody who really has a handle on this issue. Let me quote from them. So Preston Ebby says, J. Preston Ebbe, always put an initial in front of your name. It makes you sound much smarter. Um, that's why I go by R. Rob Bell, because you're like, whoa, Smart. Here's what this person says, who really clears up whatever the issue is. The first Adam is said to be the first man. The last Adam is declared to be the second man. If the second man is also the last Adam, he's also the last man. Now, if the first Adam is the first man, it would have necessarily followed that there would, were no man on earth before him, for he was the first. And if the last Adam is the second man, and there were no men on earth between the first Adam and the last Adam, for the last Adam is the second man, and there can be no man between the first man and the second man. If there were even one man between the first man and the second man, obviously the second man could not be the second man. He would be the third. Man, or the one hundredth man, or the five billionth man, and since the second man is also the last man, there cannot have been any men since him. For if others have followed him, he is not then the last man. So then, the first man was the first man, the second man was the second man, and the second man is the last man. <laughs> oh man! <laughs>
0: I have read theological texts like that <clears throat> and scratch my head. What the irony here is, is that Rob Bell has said some things that make me go, huh? <clears throat> we continue.
2: Jay Preston Eby gives a clear pronouncement of this truth. <laughs> Jay Preston, we're with you. How many of you ever heard somebody talking religious talk and you thought, I have no idea what you're saying? Yes. You seem fairly convinced of it and seem to be insisting on its clarity and simplicity, I am in a fog of rhetoric, and I can't even find my way out of it. So, uh, why do we gather? Why do we get together in this room? We get together in this room generally once a week. What is the point?
0: Now, this is a great question. Why do we gather together? Why should Christians get together at all? I mean, what's the whole purpose of church, so to speak, this ecclesia, this meeting, this gathering of those who've been called out of the world by Christ? This is a fine question to be answering.
2: Now, I want to explore a way of seeing the world and as we explore this way, I want you to be thinking is this present in our world today? Okay, now <clears throat> Told you this
0: was a tricky one to discern. Okay, he's going to answer the question by looking at a way of seeing the world, some kind of uh, uh, synthetic way of looking at the world. It kind of seems like a circuitous way of answering the question.
2: Mm, Makes me wonder if he's going to answer it biblically. Exodus chapter 25, God uh, is giving instructions on the temple, the tabernacle. Verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So early, early, early in the story, God says, Make me a house, a holy place, a temple, a sanctuary, and I will dwell in the midst of that place. Now, please turn with me to chapter 28, a couple pages to the right. If you have one of these Bibles, it's page uh, 78. Notice, <clears throat>
0: hang on a second here. Chapter 20, 25, verse 8, he read it and ever so briefly glossed over and then went immediately to 28. Okay, let me, okay, let's see here. Uh, chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is a contribution that you shall receive from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, Fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned rams, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx, stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all of its furniture, so that you shall make it. Okay, now, chapter 25, verse 8, says, Do all these things so that they may make a sanctuary or a tabernacle, and that God may dwell in their midst. It's God who says he's going to dwell in their midst.
2: you got to get this right, so listen carefully now. Uh, Now there are very, very specific instructions, I believe roughly 15 chapters of specific instructions on this temple. Now,
0: good news, I'm not going to read all 15 chapters. If you would like to do that yourself, consider fighting for the faith homework, if you would. Uh, There are no extra credit points, though, if you do this. Just
2: want to point that out. Tabernacle, sanctuary. Have Aaron twenty eight one your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, among along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Dignity and honor. So there is a sanctuary. The priests are to wear sacred garments. Notice verse twenty nine. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place. So this temple will have be a sort of holy place, and within it there will be places that are even holier than other places. Notice chapter 29. Okay, got to point something out here. It, he's reading this from
0: God's Word, so notice that God's Word kind of marks off where these holy places are. The reason I'm, I'm I want you to point, I want you to keep this in mind, it's God himself who said these things that you're hearing right now. Because Rob Bell's going to come back and attack this as some kind of a mind uh, of a mindset. So, again, today's discernment difficulty for the sermon is
2: is an eight point five or at least maybe even a nine. We continue verse six, bottom of page seventy nine. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Notice chapter twenty nine, verse thirty one. Take the ram for the ordination and cook the meat in a sacred place. So there's a sacred emblem. There are sacred garments. There were sacred undergarments. Verse 33, they are to eat these offerings by which atonement was made for their ordination and consecration. But no one else may eat them because they are sacred. So there are sacred offerings, sacred place, sacred uh, emblem, and sacred garments. Notice chapter 30, verse 25, page 81. Verse 25, make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend. Now, the word sacred is the word Kodesh. Let me hear you say Kodesh. The word means holy, set apart, consecrated. It's different. It is distinguished from the other. There are these things, and then there are these things. Now, the next book after Exodus is called Leviticus. Turn with me to Leviticus 10, verse 10. I know a lot of you will have this memorized, but let's turn there anyway. Leviticus 10, verse 10. There's a sort of explanation given for why all of these very complicated things are given all these instructions and why there is all this sacred oil, sacred garments, sacred emblems, sacred place, sacred offering, sacred gifts. 10, verse 10. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy, also you could say sacred, and the common, between the unclean, And the clean, so that you may distinguish. So, what you have is you have, uh, I should take off my belt, airport security. Um, What else is metal on me? Oh, my. Um, Well, airport security joke for you there. Now, what you have is a differentiation of physical space. So you have the common, and then build a temple, so a space other than regular space. So there is the realm where you actually live, the common. But now I want you to distinguish a place that is sacred, set apart from the everyday ordinary. I'm going to point something out here that sacred
0: space again god is the one who marked that off as the holy of holies a place where his presence dwells okay important stuff there and this isn't a mindset created by human beings
2: <laughs> this is something that's laid out in scripture we continue this place will be holy. Actually, within it, there will be gradients of holy. So there is holy, and then there will be a more holy place, and then a holy of holies. Now, this realm is to be distinguished from this realm. Unclean, clean, common, sacred. This realm is for everybody, the common, but then there are going to be a select few people who will wear sacred garments, have a sacred emblem, a sacred task, will use sacred anointing oil in the sacred place, and offer the sacred gifts and the sacred offerings in the sacred place. Next slide. Sacred garments, sacred priests, sacred gifts, sacred emblems, sacred place, sacred offerings, sacred oil, sacred temple, sacred assembly, sacred day. Sacred stones, sacred sanctuary. There are these two realms here. And in Leviticus, you are to distinguish between the one realm and the other. By the way, the word profanity, the word profane, we, we hear the word profanity and we think certain words that give certain movies certain ratings. The word profanity literally means, in Greek it's the word babelos. The word profanity actually literally means, in its ancient roots, to cross the threshold. What does that mean? To profane something is to take something sacred and to cross the threshold with it and treat it common and everyday and ordinary. That's actually where the roots of the word come from, to take... Sexuality, the dignity of a human being, to take something sacred and to treat it, kick it around, sprinkle dust on it, kind of knock it around, disrespect it, treat it like that. That's actually where the word profane comes from. Nevertheless, in Exodus and Leviticus, there is a worldview that sees two realms. In the ancient world, They saw things this way. In the ancient world, they saw things this way. In the ancient world, they saw things this way. In the ancient world, they saw things this way. In the ancient world, they saw things this way. Way.
0: Would somebody kick him, please? It sounds like a broken record.
1: (sighs)
2: Are we preaching? No. Yeah. Now, what does Jesus do with this understanding of reality? Okay, whoa, 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 okay, wait a second there.
0: What does Jesus do with this understanding of reality? as if that understanding of reality had no basis in in reality
1: yeah, yeah.
0: the jesus coming to smash um uh, understandings of reality uh maybe i'm just got to be careful here cuz again you just built up this entire reality based upon what God commanded Israel to do and to build. And it was God himself who marked off sacred space. So this wasn't a false reality that was constructed. This was a reality created by God and a way for us to perceive things.
2: And uh, 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 uh. we continue... ...in which things are split into special, holy, sacred set-of-part space, and then... The rest of life, special occupations, tasks, work, vocation, calling. And then, well, you know, the rest of us.
0: (sighs) Got to be careful here. Got to be careful here because he's he's extrapolating things that may not.
2: Certain places where you can only oh I, you can only say certain things because it's but then over here all sorts of other things that are okay because well we're not in that space so it's all different. Does Jesus? Up oh, can I ask a question? Just ask a question,
0: okay? Fact: the priests, the the Levitical priests, uh, when they would you know send send one of their own into the holy of holies. Uh, to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, okay, um, they would tie a rope around the guy 's ankle and they would hang bells at the bottom of the the priestly garments, so that if God struck him down, they could drag his carcass out. Do you think that the Levitical priest treated the holy of holies differently than they treated um, their living room back at home? Did they consider the Holy of Holies to be super sacred space? Uh, And where did they get this idea that that was sacred space? Did they just make it up? Was it some kind of myth? Uh, Or or was it that God's presence really dwelled there and that truly was something different? Important to ask these questions. Because he's playing fast and loose in deconstructing something that uh, I'm wondering if he really should be deconstructing it.
2: Hold and affirm this understanding of reality, or does he see it in a slightly different way? Turn with me over to the book of... um, Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Oh, my word, we're just getting warmed up. Now, this is key. And at some point, we'll... Begin to tie it back to why we gather. But if this understanding or framework of reality at all, you have framework of reality,
0: framework of reality. That's a really emergent postmodern way of talking. Framework of reality. Did Jesus deny the reality of sacred space? especially the sacred space of the temple or the tabernacle? Or by by fact of his incarnation and his once and for all sacrifice for sins change everything
2: regarding the sacrifices? Seen or resonate with or can identify... Notice the kinds of things Jesus does with this understanding. Matthew 12. Uh, Actually, we can start in the beginning of the chapter. Part of the sacred, of course, was a sacred day, the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Whoa, sacred day, different than the other days. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they they said to him, Look, your disciples... Are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. By the way, the job of religion is to keep this split worldview intact. The job of
0: religion is to keep this split worldview intact. Mm, I, I disagree. I think the job of religion is to try to tell you the things that you need to do in order to appease God based upon your own righteousness so that you can somehow pull yourself up by your bootstraps and uh, stand before God based upon your own good works and try to get in. Rather than trusting in Christ's death on the cross alone for the forgiveness of your sins and and basically allowing you to stand before God not based on your righteousness and merits but based upon the merits and righteousness of Christ which is given to you as a gift Forensically imputed to you. Again, he's engaging in what we call deconstruction. And what he what is he deconstructing? Supposedly, religion that works off this idea of this split view between the sacred and the and the profane, the sacred and the common.
2: Hmm. That's what religion does. And then it has its rules and its codes for keeping this view of reality preserved. So you have the Pharisees who are like, oh, it's a, it's a day that's different. You can't. You can't. He answered, haven't you read what Jesus did, David did and he, when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, so he went into the sacred holy place And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law? And by the way, for the Pharisees who were the experts in the law, when Jesus says, haven't you read the law? Seriously, that's just, that's just, if that was a rap battle, they'd be like, "Oh, oh." (laughs) Haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now remember, Jewish consciousness was deeply shaped by this realm and then the center of reality was the temple next year in Jerusalem. That's where God is. And an entire system grew up around, there are common, ordinary places, but then you go to Jerusalem, to the temple area, and you are, it is essentially, there is a center to where God is in the world, and it's there in Jerusalem, in the temple. That's how we order reality. The center is there. Jesus says, One greater than the temple is... Here,
0: okay, obviously, if he's claiming to be greater than the temple, which is nothing less than the place where the presence of God dwells, that's quite a statement, don't you think? Is it really about the separation of the sacred and the common, or is that a claim to him being God himself in human flesh? Uh, I think he's missing something here. Again, the reason why this is a a more difficult sermon to discern is because it's not what he says so much as what he doesn't say. That's why I keep
2: pointing out the things he's not saying. Jesus, of course, is speaking to himself and says, whatever he is doing, there is something happening greater than the
0: temple. Wrong. Wrong. He's not saying whatever he is doing, there is something happening greater than the temple. This is a verbal slip here, okay? And I don't think it's an accident. Jesus said that one greater than the temple is here. He is the one that's great. Yeah, let me pull this up here. Uh, Hold on a second here. Doing a little biblical search. It would be nice if I had the text in front of me. got to be careful because I don't want to engage in something here. T-E-M-P-L-E, temple. Okay, okay, guiltless to tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. Okay, Matthew 12, verse 5, verse 5 and 6. Let me give some context here. Hold on, uno momento, por favor, while I engage in a little expansion for context sakes. Okay, we're going to add three verses. Okay, I want to add more than that. Add context, four verses. Let me just do this. Matthew 12. Okay. We read At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Okay. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. Uh, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Okay. So, again, the, what are the, is it, this is about. This is not about sacred space. This is about obeying the law. Okay, just pointing this out because it's really important that you get this. See if there's cross notes to this. Hang on a second here. Cross references. And we get this. Uh, Yeah, that Luke. Okay, so this story is also picked up by Mark and Luke. I just want to point that out. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? how he, he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, uh, nor for those who were with him, but only for priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater then the temple is here. Let me see how Mark handles this passage. Do a little cross-reference work here. Okay, who are with it? And he said, um, those who were with him, and the Sabbath was made for man. Okay, Mark doesn't pick up on that section. Let's see what Luke does with it. On the Sabbath, while he was going through, okay. And he ate the bread and presents, and he said, The Son of the, uh, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, interesting. That's it's only Only Matthew picks up on that little phrase, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What would that something be? Is Jesus referring to the things he's doing or is he referring to himself? I think the correct way to understand that is that the something greater than the temple that is there is Jesus himself. And he goes on to say, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That would be the something greater than the temple. The Lord of the Sabbath himself is there, the one greater than the temple. Uh, So what we got going on here with Rob Bell is a very sneaky little thing. I'm going to back this up a few seconds so that you can hear it. Listen to what he says. Yeah, Jesus is supposedly saying, "Watch the change.
2: Watch the switch. If you didn't watch, if you didn't see it, if you weren't watching it. You would have missed it." Places, but then you go to Jerusalem to the temple area, and you are. It is essentially there is a center to where God is in the world, and it's there in Jerusalem in the temple. That's how we order reality. The center is there. Jesus says, "One." greater than the temple is
0: here. Okay, right, and he's referring to himself, the Lord of the Sabbath. God is the God of the Sabbath. Jesus is
2: claiming to be none other than God himself. Jesus, of course, is speaking to himself and says, whatever he is doing, there is something happening greater than the temple.
0: Wrong. Jesus is not talking about the things he's doing. He's talking about himself.
2: Oh boy, we're off the rails. Turn with me to John chapter 2. And then he uses volatile language. The temple is the most sacred, most holy place where they believe that God dwelt with them in some supernatural sort of way. So to use that kind of language would be speaking about the holiest of holiest of things people could imagine in this particular worldview. Jesus uses language that is extremely volatile and loaded. Notice John 2, verse 18, that the Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Well, they replied, well, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Of course, it took them a while to realize this. Uh, What does it exactly say again? After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So John here, writing many years after his death, it's like the light. Oh, now we get it. I can write that in. Now we get it. We didn't then, but we do now. There's. Uh, uh, Do you think that it didn't dawn on
0: John that what Jesus was referring to until the time he wrote this, late in his life? (sighs) Let's take a look at the passage to see if it warrants that. I mean, I'm telling you, this this is. I know what seems nitpicky. But this, you've you've got to be this careful with with God's word at times. Uh, John chapter two. Let's see here. All right, and woman, what does he, does he do with me? Draw this, take it out. My father's house. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Um hmm. Hang on. Is he in the right chapter? I wonder. I thought it was John chapter three. Maybe I'm wrong. Hang on a second here. Got to do a little biblical work here in the text. We're going to do another temple search, T-E-M-P-L-E, and we're going to look in the Gospel of John, and we're no context. All right, let's see here. Okay, John chapter 2. The temple he found, the the temple. Destroy this, ah, 219. Sorry about that. John 2... Nineteen. Let me read it in context. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us to do these things? Jesus answered him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus has spoken. Again, Rob Bell just made it sound like John didn't remember this until he wrote this. The text itself says that when he, they remembered this, when he was raised from the dead, they, they remember this on the very, very first Easter day. Again, this is really important. Sometimes discernment work requires you to be that specific with what you're hearing, because again, Rob Bell, this is not blatant false heresy per se, but there's a series of things that are just off. And he's reinforcing a liberal, emergent, postmodern worldview
2: through these things that are off. We continue. This view of reality, the temple. Some things are common, ordinary, blood, paycheck, sexuality. Just that there's just the stuff that's like, you know, just life. And then there is this other realm, the temple, holy, sacred. You watch your conduct. You only say certain things. If somebody told that joke in this realm, you would just say, hmm, I don't don't approve. Here, you'd be like, dude, what was that joke again? Because that's hilarious. (laughs) Okay, so there are these two realms. Jesus essentially says, one greater than the temple is here. He then says, destroy this temple, which is, of course, a sort of double entendre. "That Destroy this temple, which was destroyed, by the way, the actual temple. Uh, roughly 40 years after his resurrection. And I will rebuild it. So he in some ways associates himself with the temple, says one is greater, a whole thing is greater than the temple, and actually that whole old thing is going to be destroyed, which is somehow connected with his own death. So he links this whole system and its death with his death own death. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew 27, Matthew gives a small detail surrounding Jesus' death. In a split view of reality, in the temple there are gradients Of holiness. So there is the outside place in the temple, and then there is the priest, but then there is the high priest. There is the holy place, and then there is the most holy place. So within sacred space, there is a level of ascending hierarchy. There is the narthex. (laughs) So. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Now, in the temple was a veil, a curtain. Because if God is somewhere at the center of this, it's a centered way of thinking of reality. If God is somewhere in the center, then there need to be a sort of levels. And so there was a curtain in which only the high priest could go behind into the holy of holies only once a year. So there was this holier, 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 more sacred, more sacred, more sacred, more sacred. Now, Matthew speaks of Jesus death verse 50 Matthew 27 and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice he gave up his spirit Matthew 27:51 at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom now Matthew's a good Jewish writer and his audience would have been very familiar with the arrangement of the temple and so there is this temple that essentially guards people from entering into the holy of the holies. And, and that temple, that veil, the curtain, was torn in two. Now, later biblical writers pointed out, well, see, that's because now with Jesus' death, people can have direct relationship with God. People can go in Okay, got to point
0: something out here. He's kind of missing the the big one. <laughs> um, by tearing the, the uh, curtain of the temple from top to bottom, it shows that God was the one tearing it, not a human being. Jesus' once and for all sacrifice for sins was accomplished. Remember, the whole thing behind the temple, the big deal about it, was the animal sacrifices to atone for sin, sins of individuals and sins of the collective people of Israel. That's done. The forgiveness of sins has been accomplished forever, once for all, by Jesus Christ. Notice that that's not getting brought up here. So what's missing? What's missing from this sermon? What's missing? Yeah, the big thing. Christ's vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and its trumping of all of the animal sacrifices in the temple.
2: Which raises the interesting observation, people can go in, God can go... God can go
0: out. Okay, that's kind of a silly... Do you think God was confined into the Holy of Holies like a prison, like he couldn't get out?
2: <sighs> goes both ways. People through Jesus have all sorts of new access to God through Christ's death and resurrection. Well, if the temple is torn, well, that, that changes everything because God then comes out. Now, what does this mean for us? Notice what... Okay, real quick question.
0: Which of the apostles, not theologues who came later, which of the apostles pointed out this important fact that now God can come out of the temple and taught this doctrine clearly the way Bell is? Answer, none of them. This is kind of an adventure in missing the point.
2: Some of the earlier Christians picked up on. Next slide. Like in First Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? This is a monumental shift in the way people viewed reality. Because this is how it was. There is the sacred and there is the common. There is the clean. There is the unclean, there is the holy, and then there is the everyday sort of thing. With Jesus, the whole thing comes crashing down in some sort of new reality in which the holy is somehow now to be found in the common Uh, 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 uh,
0: What about the sinners being made holy by the blood of Christ? Why are we not talking about this? Somehow the common becomes holy. Yeah, like me, a common sinner? Again... This is a weird way to talk about these things because he's discussing issues that pertain to uh, sacrifices for sin, and yet that's just not getting brought up. We are made the righteousness of Christ. Yes, we are the temple of Christ, the temple of God, collectively as believers, those who have been made holy by the blood of Christ and are clothed in his righteousness. But those categories are woefully missing from this sermon this is more uh, this is more about metaphysical sacred space and what is metaphysically holy and and whatever this is more philosophy and metaphysics
2: than it is christian doctrine and christian theology sacred apparently now is somehow to be understood within the everyday maybe instead of this it's some- within the everyday What about sinners
0: made holy? I don't see anything about the everyday becoming
2: holy. Something like this. (laughs) So there is what you can see, and then there is all sorts of depth. Now, this has significant implications for what it means. To be a Christian. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Sheep and the in goats. light of this, notice some of the things that Jesus says. Okay, now he's going to be reading for
0: for our enjoyment, if you would, a section from the sheep and the goat judgment. Okay, keep in mind, Jesus talks about on the last day, okay, um, you know, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne And before him, all of the uh, nations will be gathered and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, This is really important. You keep in mind, you're separated by what you are. You are either a sheep or you are a goat. Only after you are separated by what you are is what you've done discussed. Now, you gotta, you gotta, let, me, let me read this for you so you can watch how he twists this passage, because twist he is about to do. Uh, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, "Uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Notice the sheep don't keep track of their good works. (laughs) It's like, what? What? You, huh? And then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Keep in mind that the Sheep are completely oblivious to the fact that they were doing this to the Lord. We continue.
2: He tells a story, a parable of sorts. It's a parable of warning about when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him and he sits on his glorious throne. So he He speaks of his judging and ordering of the world. And he speaks of two different kinds of people sheep and goats. And he places himself as a sort of king, and verse 37 there are these right a sort of king." This is sort of a parable of kind of something like
0: warning. And uh, keep in mind, he's not going to read the uh, the second part of the passage. Uh, let me read it for you because I wonder what this would do to uh, uh, Rob Bell's worldview. Then he will say to those on his left, the <clears throat> goats, uh, "Depart from me, you cursed." into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And then the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Keep in mind, one of the things you've got to be listening for is what does Rob Bell not talk about? That's significant
2: righteous, who will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, what is he saying here? It is easy to be around people who are generous and honest and truthful and kind and creative and loving and say, oh, I saw Jesus in them. Perhaps you've had this experience before. You're like, okay, this person, what? What?
0: Uh, That's not what this is saying at all.
2: I swear to you, I'm around them and it's like you can just see this, the living Christ in them. Jesus says, in this story, his followers will be the kinds of people who can find Christ in the least of these. Uh,
0: no, that is not a valid interpretation of Matthew 25, that his followers will find Christ in the least of these? No, because otherwise, why did the sheep express such utter shock and say, Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison and hungry and, huh? If what Rob Bell said was true, the sheep wouldn't be shocked that they were ministering to Jesus. Gonna back it up, listen carefully again. This is just subtle, 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 subtle and wrong, wrong, wrong.
2: In this story, his followers will be the kinds of people who can find Christ in the least of these. So his followers will be the kinds of people he uses the example of the prisoner which means you're actually identifying with the prisoner, the the naked, the sick, the thirsty, his followers.
0: I'm identifying with them? I have a friend that I've visited in prison. Dear Christian brother, who's in prison. And I didn't go there to identify with him. I went there to encourage him, to hold his hand, to pray with him, to hug him, pat him on the back. Not just say, "Hey, I'm praying for you, brother," but actually show up, identify with him. I wasn't the prisoner; I was the visitor. What does that mean? I'm, I'm identifying with the
2: print, with the prisoner will be the kinds of people who are able more and more and more in their interaction with the other, the least of these, they will be more and more attuned to the Christ who is present in that interaction. They will be more and more attuned to the Christ who is present
0: in that interaction. If that were true, Rob, then why is it that the sheep were going, "Uh, Lord, when did we see you naked and hungry and feed you and clothe you and visit you and all that kind of stuff? What you just said is not taught in the scripture at all. In fact, what you just said is the exact opposite because... They're not seeing Christ in the prisoner and in the naked and stuff like that. They're shocked that he was there. The big surprise at the end of time is that Jesus was the one... They, they, when they visiting the sick and the poor and the, all that kind of stuff. They were doing it for Jesus. That was the big surprise.
2: Oh, man. It won't just be another bothersome, thirsty person. They will see this person and their need as an opportunity to engage with the living Christ who will be present in that engagement. Are you with me? It's easy to see people who are really Jesus-like and say, oh man, sure, sure, there he is, there he is. But he says his followers will be the kinds of people who increasingly in everyday ordinary relationships, specifically in in their interactions with the least of these, They will be able to sense and be aware of the sacred. Nothing in the text about sensing and being
0: aware. How are they going to sense this? Are they going to use the force? Are they going to be like Luke Skywalker and reach out with their feelings? Will they feel Jesus flowing through them? Mm, Feel, Jesus, you must flow through you. What are you talking about, Rob? That is not in the text at all. Nor is it even a valid conclusion or interpretation of this text.
2: Holy nature of that interaction, and they will act accordingly. The point of a sermon... All right, can't wait
0: to. Based on that, I can't wait to hear what he says the point of a sermon is. It could it be to, you know, like the Apostle Paul said that regarding the Corinthian church, he chose to know nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified? Could it be to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that there were eyewitnesses to this, and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? to call sinners to repentance and to receive and to receiving the good news that Christ died for our sins why do i feel like that's probably not what he's going to think the point of a sermon is the
2: point of a teaching the point of a message is to make us more aware of the Christ in the common what the point of a sermon
0: is to make us more aware of the Christ in the common uh Rob <clears throat> do you have one verse that says anything like that? Just one anywhere, Genesis to
2: maps? A teaching can either further, and a religious system and a denomination and a church can either continue to affirm some things are common and some things are sacred, and if you'd like to enter into our sacred club, here are the rules.
0: It either affirms... Notice he's mocking biblical Christianity with a straw man argument to boot.
2: ...affirms a split worldview, or... It is alerting us to the Christ present in the least of these, the everyday common interactions, particularly with... ...alerting us to the Christ present in the
0: least of these. So basically the purpose of preaching is to somehow make us aware of the Christ in the least of these so that we engage in social justice. This is the uh, some kind of a mystical, subjective, social gospel type thing. And the purpose of preaching is to get you to engage in the social gospel. Nothing. N- notice nothing about the forgiveness of sins and calling re- sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus' name. No gospel here at all. Instead, it's supposed to raise your awareness of the presence of the Christ, which really sounds very metaphysical to me.
2: With those that we would be the quickest to dismiss, their might. Christ is present here. A sermon is about awakening us to the Christ. Awakening us. Oh, hang on, i got to back this. Awakening
0: us. Wow, that's, that's awakening us. That's mysticism talk. Hmm.
2: It is alerting us to the Christ present in the least of these, the everyday common interactions, particularly with those that we would be the quickest to dismiss. There might, Christ is present here. A sermon is about awakening us to the Christ in the common. If it does not, and it further exacerbates a split view of the universe, then it isn't Christian, no matter how many Bible verses it quotes.
0: So if, if it doesn't alert us to the Christ in the common, awaken us, sorry, awaken us to the Christ in the common, but further exacerbates the concepts of sacred and profane and sacred and common, then it isn't Christian. So preaching about sins and a holy God, that would be further exacerbating the split between the sacred and the common. So that's not Christian, by Rob Bell's definition of what a sermon is supposed to be doing. Yet mysteriously missing is the proclamation of Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. God being holy. We being rebellious sinners. Huh.
2: Now, now let's, take this, let's take this one step further. There is a medium in our culture, a technological medium that is designed to lower your IQ. It is called political talk radio. Now, What happens in this medium, what happens in this particular medium is people from the extreme edges of both perspectives create caricatures of the other side and then with only one microphone turned on, shred the caricature of the other side. And then people call in and say, nice job. Are you with me? If you are a Christian, and I'm not talking about actual, particular, specific perspectives on particular policies. I am talking about broad, sweeping generalizations about groups of people with whom you have never actually significantly interacted one-on-one. If you are a Christian, and you are growing in your heightened awareness of the Christ in the common, then it will be growing in your heightened awareness of the Christ in the
0: common. Again, which of the apostles taught this?
2: Where does Jesus teach this? It will be harder and harder for you to speak of those stupid people over there because sweeping labels and generalizations is going the opposite direction than finding the Christ in the common. So what you will discover as you grow in your awareness of Jesus' view of the reality that every person is an image bearer. Grow in your
0: awareness. Oh, man. This is all about indoctrinating you into a, quote, frame of mind.
2: Every person is a sacred, precious creation of God. Every person is valued and loved in an eternal, infinite sort of way by the maker of the universe. Notice, this is just love without any
0: grounding in the crucifixion. We read in Scripture that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever whosoever believes in him will not perish eternally, but have eternal life. Yes, God loves us in a very real, tangible, eternal way. We, as a human race, were created in God's image and... We fell by rebelling against God and being disobedient. Every one of us now, according to Scripture, not Roseboro, but according to the clear teachings of Scripture, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, are born sinful, rebellious, and by nature objects of God's wrath. Here, Bell is basically preaching about a God without any wrath at all, who just loves, he's just so loving, and he loves everybody eternally. Isn't that great news? And you can see the Christ in the other, and you need to be aware of the Christ in the other. Isn't that just great news? The problem is, is that's not the biblical good news. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through uh, 3. And you Do you think that the apostle Paul and Rob Bell are preaching the same gospel?
2: I don't. We continue. You will be finding harder and harder and harder to stick with the same old boring static categories of them and them and us and them and right and left because what will happen? is you will be having encounters with the least of these, which, by the way, include your enemies. And you will walk away thinking, there was something Jesus-y about that experience that I can't explain, but all I know is it was very real. Something jesus
0: So rather than going and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name so that even your enemies hear about the love of Christ and the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross, you come away from the encounter with your enemy who may or may not, who probably is even unregenerate, and you go, oh, there was something Jesus-y about that. I could just feel it in my heart.
2: Are you with me now?
0: No, I am not. Not until you repent and start preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. I don't think we're even on the, We're even in the
2: same religion. This is why it will be harder and harder to take part in some of the insane debates because Jesus wants to heighten our awareness at a very practical... Where in the scriptures does it say
0: Jesus wants to heighten our awareness i mean you, you have you all ever watched a beauty pageant i i've watched a couple of them i can't personally i can't stand them and there's nothing worse in my mind when i can't stand it when some beauty queen gets up and you know they ask her what you know what 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 she's what is her cause what is the thing that she's supporting in the charity she sell i'm here to raise awareness of of the struggle that women go through in breast
1: cancer so
0: i'm i'm here to raise awareness to of breast cancer i just sit there and go can you go get a real job we're here to raise awareness so now, Rob Bell's Jesus is is probably just as ditzy as a, as a beauty queen and is out there raising awareness. Jesus is going to help us raise... He's going to help raise our awareness of the Christ in the other. uh Jesus is raising awareness. Isn't that
2: great? Practical level, then, we gather together... We gather together for a worship, liturgical teaching, worship sort of function as a church. Because what we've discovered as Christians is that on a regular basis, it's very helpful to be reminded of the Christ in the common. Well, How about
0: be reminded and t- told about the biblical Jesus? The Rob Bell's Jesus is just there to raise awareness. What, what personally, what is my job? Well, one of my jobs is... Preach Christ and him crucified, that's your job. And call sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's your job.
2: To do everything I can to try and heighten our awareness of... (sighs) What a completely lame gospel this is.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) I'm here to raise awareness, heighten awareness. Oh, it just sounds so practical and so loving and so
2: stupid. Of the Christ... In the common. This is true of people. Uh, This is also true of places. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter (laughs) twenty-eight.
0: Okay, so not only are we supposed to be is he supposed to be raising awareness of the Christ in people, but now of the Christ in places too.
2: (sighs) Can't wait to hear this. Uh, This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I so relate to it, and uh jacob is he 's just like all over the place his story um he he 's just a, um, a bit of a head case early on and makes make some progress a bit like the rest of us and he has this dream and there's uh this, there's a, well, notice verse 12. He had a dream, Genesis 28, in which he saw a staircase resting on earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending. By the way, the rabbis point out, wait, they're ascending and descending. Wait, ascending means to go up, and then descending means to go down. Does that mean that their home is here? Nevertheless. Um, if you're a rabbi and you have lots of time, that's the kind of thing you point out. You
0: know, Rob, I think you need to read a lot less of the rabbis and read a lot more of, like, Luther and Calvin and, and maybe some good Reformed theologians, you know, Reformation types. Maybe we ought to send Rob Bell a copy
2: of the, uh, uh, the new uh, Lutheran Study Bible. Verse 14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. So it's this massive, epic sort of dream. Um, I don't have dreams like this. I have dreams involving, uh, for some reason, my third grade teacher is in the aisle at the supermarket. And there's jumper cables and bubble gum. How many of you have those where it's like it makes no sense whatsoever? You write it down and the next day you're like, I am one messed up dude. Now, um, verse 16, but he has dreams involving dust of the earth and ladders ascending from heaven. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely... The Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. To me, this is, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to grow as a disciple? What does it mean to follow God? It means that you constantly find yourself waking up going, Oh man, God has been in this place the whole time, and and I missed it. Until now. so, goes, what's your definition of faith? Uh, waking up. Your definition of faith is waking up.
0: Biblical faith, by the way, is simple, childlike. Trust in the promises of God for the forgiveness of sins and him declaring us to be righteous because of Christ. That's the biblical definition of faith. His definition, waking up, that's a dreamer's definition of
2: faith, <laughs> pun intended. To a God who's been here the whole time, I just needed the shades pulled a little bit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we have, we have, you and I, we have our lives. We have the things that we do. We have the things that we are caught up in. It's very easy to see them as common and then we leave our common life and we go talk about other things and then we go back to our everyday sort. I mean think of the things that we do every day you and I the kind of, it's groceries and gas and mowing the lawn and sitting in construction
0: okay now this is where this section of this little section of his sermon is actually decent okay Again, there's actually some merit here, and here's the reason why, because Scripture makes it clear that all of the work that we do in our lives, whether it's the work of our vocation, whether it's the work of being mom or dad, cleaning snotty noses, going to the grocery stores, mowing the lawn, all of that stuff, we are to do all of our work as unto the Lord, and we do that by faith, okay? And so the way we serve our God is is not just in the in in doing work like leading a Bible study or preaching of a, a sermon. No, all of us serve God in our vocation. So this little section here of the sermon is actually okay. It it it's a little off, but um, he's making a valid point. So not everything he preaches is bad. It's not like it's without merit. So listen carefully. I think
2: he makes some decent points traffic, and paying the insurance bill, and electric bills, and laundry, and celebrating the new Chipotle on 28th Street, and then taking out the trash, and sorting the recycling, and sitting in more construction traffic, and walking outside and saying, wow, it's human and jumping off the Grand Haven Pier, and going to the dentist, and the doctor, and getting a haircut, and paying the summer tax bill, ah and going to work and sitting in construction traffic and coming home and filling out forms for health insurance and sweeping the floor and vacuuming the carpet and feeding the dog and then setting one day a week aside as a day of rest and going to a church service and sitting in traffic. Uh, no. We, we have... the. It's very easy to develop the common kind of stuff that we do and then, oh yeah, we gather together and talk about that stuff. Jacob wakes up and says, "Surely, God was in this place the whole time. I just wasn't aware of it."
0: Uh, again, he saw the angels ascending and descending. Um, this is not a good verse to support the idea that we serve God in all of we, in all that we do. There's clearer passages. Again, not a valid
2: implication or teaching on that passage. Do we gather so that somebody can spout off for a while from the stage, and then when it's over, we can say, yeah, I think she did a pretty good job? She? She. Huh. Biblically, there are, there ain't no she pastors. Do we gather... So that somebody can kind of share some things, and then we can go out and say, Um, he was better last week. <laughs> do we gather and listen to somebody talk about Bible versey things, and then go pick up our kids and say to people who are coming for the next service, Oh, no, seriously, it was good. Or, no, I don't know, it was a little flat. Is that the point? Or do we gather? in order to listen with the assumption and expectation and hope that in some way the shades will be pulled back just a little bit, I'll hear something, I'll see something, something that's said about some other topic will resonate with me in such a way that I will wake up in some small way. Perhaps you are going through a very, very difficult time. How about I'll hear of God's
0: holiness, I'll hear of His love and kindness by dying on the cross for my sins. I will hear of my wretchedness and how I don't measure up to God's law. And I will be called to praise God for his mercy and his gift in Christ. Again, notice he's just talking in some vagaries. Whereas the Christian gospel is grounded in very real heralded heralded proclamations of the divine love for us, God's love for us in Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave.
2: Hmm. It's a sort of storm, and perhaps you hear something and you become aware that God has been in this storm the whole time, and I'd never seen it that way until now. Do we gather in order to find God? Is that the point of a church service? There is this place where you can go and find God. Or is the point of a church service to gather together in order to listen and in order to learn how to find God everywhere else?
0: Uh, you got any verses on that one, Rob? Just a single, I mean, really clear verses that actually teach this concept. See,
2: this, of course, can change everything. By the way, a split view of reality in which you have the common and the sacred actually disempowers. Because what it says, not that, not disempowerment. Oh, that sounds terrible. Is that certain places are where the action is. The center is here. And certain people who are closer to the action, the priests... They're the ones who have access to the stuff. What you find with Jesus, the priests have access to the stuff.
0: Uh, Rob, come on. You know what the priests were doing. Access to the stuff is not it. They were carefully, methodically following the uh, the steps of, that were necessary for them to perform for this, basically, animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, for atoning. And they didn't dare deviate from, the, from what happened because, well, there's some examples of uh, priests who deviated from the, what God laid out, and uh, they died rather abruptly. So access to the stuff? I don't see that in the Levitical priesthood at all. It's not like the Levitical priesthood. They had access to the stuff. I don't know what you're talking about
2: is that the center is everywhere. Remember, if you were a good Jew in the first century, you would say, where's the temple? You would know the temple's there. It's in Jerusalem. And so for you, the action, the divine, was up there. It's in Jerusalem, south of here, north of here, east of here, west of here. It's in Jerusalem. It's 17 miles away. Jerusalem, it's up the mountain, 10 miles away. Jerusalem. The center is... Th- what action? What center? The center for the forgiveness of sins. The, uh,
0: the holy presence of God. Oh, my.
2: There. What does Jesus view? How does Jesus view the world? Oh, no, no. The center, when the temple comes down, is now everywhere.
0: The center is now everywhere. D- can you give me a single passage that teaches that the center is now everywhere? That clearly elucidates this new brand new postmodern emergent doctrine that you're preaching that the center is everywhere what's the center the whole point of the of the temple was the sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins to appease the wrath of god propitiate him jesus is the ultimate sacrifice he's the action he's the center He's the all in all. The action is with Jesus.
2: <sighs> and so as a Christian then, to view, well, I have this kind of job and it's, <laughs> and it's these people who are, <laughs> and there's, it's just cubicle farm. <laughs> uh, but, but then there is this place where I can go and there's all these shiny, happy Christians and there is totally, what is that? That is a view that the center is here and then there is just my kind of life over here. But what you find again and again and again and again in the scriptures with Jesus is, oh, no, 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 oh, no, the center, the center has moved. There's no longer a center. The center is everywhere. Turn with me over to, now, well, thank that's The center is everywhere. What does that sentence even mean? <sighs> it's great. Love it. Great. Next, notice, notice Mark 14. Notice how this works. By the way, this will change everything. Um, Yeah, if you believe it, because it'll get you outside
0: of biblical Christianity into some kind of ethereal, postmodern, panentheistic kind
2: of thing. As it starts to kick in here. Hopefully by now you are beginning to deconstruct, perhaps, religious experiences you have had that actually... um, Why is it that when people move to a foreign country to be missionaries, we have commissioning services and we send them off, but we don't do this for people working their first insurance salesperson job? (laughs) Why don't we do that? Why don't we come up and say, so-and-so, she is starting her first teaching job. She is serving three miles from here, and we're going to commission her. Why do we only do it when it's special, holy, sacred sort of things? What does that do, actually? It disempowers. I'm just kind of common, normal, everyday stuff, and apparently there's other... It's just exacerbating the same old worldview that Jesus came to say, one greater than the temple is here. And that
0: would be Jesus himself. Are you with me? No.
2: We'll do, we'll do. You know what we ought to do? Have you ever seen, have you ever seen missionary um, support cards that they send you with a picture of the family, and then it says, the smiths serving in... New Guinea with Such and Such Ministries International. Have you ever seen those? We should all do those for our Christmas cards this year. And be like, be like, you know, John and Mary Van Schmorkishma serving in Hudsonville with Mars Hill International or something. And be like, <laughs> send it to all your friends. Have them be like, what, when did you guys, what are you guys doing now? Just what we've always been doing. We just decided to be honest about it. Anyway. That'd be so brilliant. <laughs> we should get like a like a missionary background with the globe, and the little pin would be on West Michigan. <laughs> we raise our own support. Thank you. Now, uh, where are we? How much time? We only have about a half hour left. Now, uh, oh yeah, yeah, Mark fourteen. Uh, Jesus is uh, reclining. At the table of the home of Simon the leper, verse 3. Bummer of a last name. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And you all know what pure nard does when you break it on someone's head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, pouring perfume on a body before burial was a sacred religious act. That's something you did according to Jewish religious custom. Therefore, I, truly, I tell you, wherever the Gospels preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her, which I guess we're doing right now. Uh, these followers, there are common, ordinary sorts of things, and then there is sacred, holy sorts of things, And she has just wasted a bunch of pure nard, which is expensive. And that pure nard could have been given to the poor. And how would you give it to the poor? You would go into the temple area. And you would give the money as a sacred offering to the temple, which would then be distributed to the poor. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. It may have looked to you like an ordinary sort of odd gesture that a woman did. But actually there is infinite, sacred, holy depth to what she did. It may have looked common to you, but it was actually a very sacred act. Based
0: on what? Are you going to talk about Jesus, the incarnate deity,
2: Uh, the one true God in human flesh? It may have appeared to you to be terribly ritually unclean. what is she What is this woman doing? But it was actually a gesture of purity and cleanness. Jesus in people, in places and events. Jesus sees the holy and the sacred in the ordinary. Oh, man, talk about it an adventure in
0: missing the point oh, man. So she pours out this nard. She anoints Jesus. uh, Okay, and they they complain, verse 5, Mark 14, for this anointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She was worshiping her god and savior jesus christ how come bell missed that for you always will have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me me jesus she has anointed my body beforehand for Burial. So here we even got the gospel. Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. <sighs> Man, so here we got Rob Bell. Somehow this is uh, some kind of a Jesus sees the sacred in the common. Oh, come on, are you that thick, Rob? Are you so steeped in your liberal, postmodern, emergent, progressive thinking that you can't see that this woman anointed her God, this was an act of worship t- for the one true God, Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh. Sacred versus profane. My foot. And so they missed it. They. <laughs> and then you
2: say they missed it. Unbelievable. Rob, no, really, you're the one who missed it. They all saw the same thing. But for them, it was just an odd, common, ordinary sort of thing. For Jesus... Oh, no, 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 you have to understand, that, that was like an act of worship.
0: No, it was. (sighs) To him. It was an act of worship to him.
2: Let me show you a picture. Man in a hat, an old shirt, playing an old violin. Next slide. Washington, D.C. Metro Station, on a cold January morning in 2007. The man with the violin played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Next. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and then hurried to meet his schedule. After four minutes, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat and, without stopping, continued to walk. After six minutes, a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again.
0: I've seen this video, by the way. It's very amazing. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, Anyway, I wonder if he's going to make the point that uh, that Jesus was trying to raise awareness of the Christ within him to the people.
2: Just wondering if that's where we're going to end up with this. After ten minutes, a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. After 45 minutes, the musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of 32 after one hour, he finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, there was no, there was, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston where the seats averaged $100. Why do we gather? Why do we listen to teachings? Why do we have house churches? Why do we take part in this thing called the Christian faith?
0: Using Rob Bell's metaphor about this, this world-famous violinist who was at the train station and playing a $3 million violin and no one stopped to listen and he only got $32. bucks. do not you think that that fits perfectly to the fact that he missed the whole fact that the woman... Who anointed Jesus with the Nard was anointing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus wasn't just merely pointing out the fact that that, that this was, this common act was sacred. It was sacred because she was worshiping God. Jesus is God in human flesh. Rabel is just like one of those people who walked by this great violinist and didn't realize who he was. Here he told this story about God in human flesh and failed to point out the significant fact that he that this woman was worshipping the one true God, and that's what made this worshipful act worshipful and sacred. It was sacred because of the one who was there, Jesus himself, God in human flesh.
2: Oi, I do, because I believe there are Joshua Bells on every corner.
0: Yes, and you missed Jesus Christ. You missed God in human flesh right there in the story of the woman who anointed Jesus
2: with the nard. And our job is simply to be listening so that we don't miss the music. Really?
0: Give me a break. What kind of lame gospel is this? I'm supposed to, we're all supposed to be listening for the hidden Joshua bells in the world. And just we're just supposed to stop and listen to the music.
2: (sighs) God, I specifically bring before you my brothers and sisters who have lives they would characterize as common. Common job, common commute, common neighborhood, common apartment, common, just common, common, common. Please rescue us. From a worldview in which the common and the sacred are separated.
0: <laughs> Whew. Please, God, rescue me from this worldview. It's it's oppressing me. I just am not, uh, help 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 me, God, uh, save me from this worldview. I'm sorry, but the biblical Jesus has something more important to save us from than worldviews. Worldviews were. They're sacred and common. No. The biblical Jesus, the one true God in human flesh, came to save us not from a worldview, but to save us from the wrath of God itself because we have earned God's wrath through our sinful and wretched rebellion against him in thought, word, and deed by the things we do and the things we don't do. The good news is not that Christ came to set us free from a worldview of sacred and profane. Instead, he came to make us the righteousness of God through his vicarious death on the cross for our sins. And so that we would be called a holy nation, a kingdom of priests unto God through the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins, to call men to repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that they may be declared righteous, not having a righteousness of their own that comes to the law, but the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ and is a gift.
2: Unbelievable.
0: (laughs) Save us from this
2: worldview of the... Please rescue us from a way of dividing reality. Into Lord God, please
0: rescue Rob Bell from, from dividing you, and not seeing you, and not seeing the forgiveness of sins in your word. ...to the holy
2: and the normal. We want to be the kinds of people that when everybody else is saying, why this waste, and chastising and condemning the woman we will say oh no no it was beautiful
0: oh give me a break oh my aching foot come on we're trading the biblical truth of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ for this oh come on we oh it's like trading gold for trinkets oh man Folks, the biblical good news is not that you're being rescued from a worldview, but you're being rescued from God's wrath, his coming judgment upon all of us who have earned his wrath and judgment. And God is graciously offering us a full and complete pardon in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sins and for mine. Therefore, we are to call the world to repentance of their sins, repentance and turn them to the forgiveness of sins offered in jesus christ as a free gift to be received by grace through faith it's plain and simple i don't know what that was but that wasn't the biblical gospel man yeah all of the biblical stuff all of the biblical gospel stuff completely missing uh whereas uh well of course i was able to insert that but all right, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, it's important to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing this important outreach to you as well as to other people. Uh, you can support us a couple of ways. First of all, visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. It allows you to donate freely right there online securely. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box. 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy of God against his own wrath for the forgiveness of your sins offered to you in Jesus Christ. Amen.